this is The Guardian. Before we start, just a warning that this episode contains some heavy content, including references to suicide and self-harm. If you're affected by this, we have put some links and resources on the full story page. Okay, I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. An investigation by Guardian Australia has revealed that the Australian government used a private security firm to collect intelligence in offshore detention on Nauru in 2016. Asylum seekers who had contact with Australian journalists, lawyers and advocates were closely watched by intelligence officers, and their reports were circulated amongst senior government officials. Today, reporter Christopher Norse explores what's in these secret reports and speaks to two asylum seekers who were surveilled. Chris, where do you want to start this story? So this story starts with a website known as Enlace Hacktivista. So this website is basically a dumping ground for hacking activists, somewhere they publish files that they've hacked. Mm. So earlier in March this year, they released a trove of documents, 82 gigabytes of files held by the Nauru police force that these activists had hacked. Mm. So it was a huge volume of documents and we had things like emails, we had internal records, all sorts of documents that the Nauru police force held. And this, this hack was done in protest of Australia's offshore detention policy. So it was done after an agreement last year to indefinitely keep the regional processing centre open. Chris, can you just remind us a little bit about the history of offshore detention on Nauru and what's happening on the island right now? So the Nauru facility was opened in 2001 as part of the Howard government's Pacific Solution. It designed, as many people will know, to, to hold asylum seekers who had tried to come to Australia by boat. So as of a couple of months ago, um, there were no people in the detention centre itself, but there were uh, roughly 112 asylum seekers and refugees still living on Nauru. But the government has made it clear that they want to keep the detention centre open indefinitely and continue to use it for its original purpose. Mm. So when these hacktivists gave a reason for what they'd done, they said, we decided to hack the Nauru police force who were tasked by the Australian government with policing the island and obtained 285,635 confidential emails related to abuses that they tried to cover up and we are making them all public. Mm. So all of these hacked files are uploaded to this website. What do you do with them, Chris? So... When we're dealing with files like this, we have to be extremely careful. There's a very high bar in terms of what we can report on um, and what we can do with these documents. So, you know, we have to be mindful of privacy concerns. We have to be mindful of, of a whole range of ethical concerns. But we only want to report on these documents if there is a really clear and compelling public interest in doing so. Mm. Specifically, what caught my eye was the series of reports from 2016, so during the former coalition government's term, um, which were compiled by intelligence officers working for Wilson Security. So Wilson were a company that was subcontracted by Broadspectrum, the government's main uh, Nauru contractor in 2016. Mm. 
And each fortnight, what we were seeing was the intelligence officers were sending reports to a group then known as the Joint Security Committee, or the JSC. The JSC was made up of Australian Border Force superintendents and commanders, Nauru Police Force superintendents and constables, officials in the Immigration Department, um, the AFP. Um, they were sending them to Broad Spectrum and, and to other private contractors working on the islands. Right, so you have people high up in the Australian government and police force, plus the Nauru police, being briefed by these intelligence officers. What were they being briefed on? What was in these reports? So these reports were designed to brief the government about the activities of individual asylum seekers on Nauru. So that included children and it it was principally aimed at anyone who was viewed as a threat to the regional processing centre. So... We're not entirely sure how they were gathering this intelligence, what methods they were using. Um, but what we do know is that 2016, this was a, a year of really intense protest against offshore detention. There were a lot of protests on Nauru. And these reports were essentially, they were gathering intelligence on, on what they called asylum seekers of interest. So they were identifying people who were influential community members or protest organisers or anyone they said might be spreading negative propaganda about offshore detention or having a negative influence in the centre. They were also identifying anyone who may be pro-security and may have influence within the detention centre, um, which was very interesting. What exactly did these reports look like? Like what types of information did they have on these asylum seekers and how was it conveyed? So why don't we pull up one of the reports and and I can show you as an example. Mm. Right. So they've got kind of a flow chart here with photos of, it almost looks like a family tree really, with photos of various asylum seekers and notes underneath them. Let's read out some of those notes there. So there's one here that says, It has a picture of a man and then above that it says individual has links with Australian media and has family in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And others identify individuals who have contact with lawyers or whose family members have contact with lawyers. Mm -hmm. And the reports also flag individual asylum seekers who have contact with refugee advocates. Right, so it's not identifying people who are necessarily violent. It's more identifying people with influence and links to Australia, it sounds like. Yeah, that's right. And it's, I mean, it's telling, isn't it, who they consider to be a threat to the security of the detention centre. It's not somebody who's, you know, maybe running around and and assaulting people. It's somebody who might be speaking to a journalist or a lawyer or an advocate. And that, I think, is, is a really important point to remember throughout this story. So once I'd pieced together exactly what was going on here, exactly what these reports were, who they were intended for and and how how frequent they were, I really wanted to try and talk to some of the people that had been identified by Wilson Security. Hello. Hi, Chris. It's Munez. How are you? Hey, how you doing, Munez? Good, thank you. So both men speak Farsi, so we talked to them via a translator named Munez Mansubi. Hello. Hi, Nazir. Salam, uh, Nasir. Salam. Okay, Chris, uh, would you like to talk and introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Nazir. Uh, it's Chris Norse here from The Guardian. We spoke um, last week. Yeah. 
I'm not sure if you got my email um, earlier today. So one of them, his name is Nazir Badawi, and above his picture in the report, it says links with Australian media and has family in Melbourne. So he's from Iran. He came to Australia in 2018 with his wife and three children. Okay, so I uh, belong to a minority group, which is called Ahwazi, and we've been discriminated in Iran, and uh, we didn't feel safe, we didn't have access to equal rights as other citizens of Iran, and because we didn't feel safe at all, so I had to just um, come to Australia with my family. Hello, salam alaikum. The other man who I spoke to is now living in Australia in community detention, um, and he was only willing to speak to us anonymously. So throughout the episode, I'll refer to him only as Mehdi. We also can't reveal what the Wilson reports say about him because it would tend to identify him. What did you talk to Mehdi and Nasir about? So firstly, I just really wanted to get an idea of, you know, their backstory, what they went through on Nauru, how they came to be on Nauru. And, you know, even asking those sorts of questions, it was it was clearly a, a tough, um, tough experience for both of them. Uh, both were, were still deeply scarred by what they'd been through on Nauru. And one of the first things Mehdi said to me when I asked him about his time there was... When I hear about Nauru... Not only me, but everyone who's been there, our heart start beating very fast and there are lots of pain and sorrow comes with that. And for Nazir, the first thing he talked about is just how scary it all was. We were all frightened. We were so fearful, especially children, when we got there. So we saw like uh, lots of trees and stones and we saw tent and we had like the feeling that we're going to live in the middle of jungle and it was very stressful, but we had to endeavor because we couldn't go back to our country. So both men talked about the really horrible conditions that they endured on Nauru. They both had to get through these really terrible living conditions in these big tents that many asylum seekers were being kept in. Mehdi said, you know, that basically there was no air circulation at all. And there was no AC, only there were a couple of uh, fans, ceiling fan, two or three in each tent that um, they didn't at all help to make us uh, feel like a bit cool. So uh, mostly they even make the situation worse and it was like the um, fire comes from the sky. And because of all that, the humidity, the lack of air circulation, the poor conditions in those tents, these spaces were full of mold. And uh, many people just uh, started suffering from skin um, diseases. Uh, still, uh, I suffer from skin diseases. 
And aside from the conditions themselves, both say they were treated terribly at the camp. Now, keep in mind, this wasn't necessarily at the hands of Wilson Security. You know, they were just subcontracted to provide security. So constantly we were threatened. They were telling us that um, you can't stay here. You don't have any right to stay here. You should go back to your country. They insult us. Nazir spoke of the trauma of watching fellow detainees set themselves on fire. He remembered waking up with his young children one morning to find a man dead nearby. The person who slept and he never uh, woke up was our neighbor just uh, living in the tent next to our tent and it was my son's uh, friend. So uh, how would my son just forget this? And I asked Nazir, you know, people describe this as torture, people have been through it and I asked him whether that was something that he agreed with. Every day we were tortured. They kept telling us uh, negative news and um, constantly they threatened us. And it was a part of our life there. And even though, as we're speaking now, both of these men were eventually able to leave Nauru and come to Australia, their time there has left them with really severe and lasting health effects. In particular, Nazir was telling me about just this constant pain that he has in his head ever since. So since 2015, I have a headache for 24 hours every day and every hours. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong, and at one point they thought a sinus operation might help. But while he was on the waiting list for that operation, things got worse. One of my eyes stopped working. I became somehow blind and I couldn't see anything. I was just seeing things like a double for five months. Then I got better. But three months ago, it all started again. Uh, And uh, when I saw the doctor, they said it's all because of the trauma. So he's not really been able to work, he can't drive, and he's struggling to pay his rent. His life, he said, is really, really affected by what happened to him. And I just want to emphasize that Australian government and Australian law actually ruined my life. Before you're able to speak to these men, did either of them know that they were being watched and that their activities were being reported on to some of the most powerful people in Australia? Look, I think they may have had a suspicion, but, you know, the reality when it's laid out in front of you is is much more confronting. Next. What did authorities use this intelligence for? Chris, tell me about what those conversations were like as you discussed what was in the report about these two men. Yeah, I mean, these weren't easy conversations to have. Um, I wanted to ask you about some documents that we found um, that show that Wilson Security, who was 
was monitoring uh, individual asylum seekers, including yourself. I just wanted to get your reaction to that. I mean, how does that make you feel to know that you were being watched by Wilson security and the and the government? All of uh, uh, what can I say about this? Um, a human being never does this, but um, if a person is happy about torturing others, we won't expect anything else from them. For Mehdi, I guess he'd been through so much already on Nauru that this hardly came as a shock to him. I mean, he wasn't aware of it, but, you know, he just sort of said to me, we have uh, faced uh, many worse things. We've been tortured. If I think about Hitler, Hitler was killing people, but this system made people to kill themselves. Whereas Nazir, his response was more of, I guess, a sudden realisation. Explain that. What did he say? He responded by saying that you know, knowing this, knowing that they were monitoring him in this way, his treatment started to make a lot more sense. Mm. Because he said he always suspected that he was being treated differently than other asylum seekers on Nauru. Um, Nazir, I'm about to send you an image of yourself in one of these reports and how you were discussed. Okay. I've sent the message on WhatsApp. Can you see it? Yep, they can see. Yeah. So what that message says, Nizia, is it identifies you with a picture and it says that you have links with Australian media and has family in Melbourne. So this was Wilson Security telling the Australian government that you were speaking to media while you were on Nauru. Um, and I just wondered how it makes you feel to know that you were being watched in this way. Uh, so Chris, what he's explaining is that because they knew that I was in touch with uh, media and things, um, so they started treating me differently. Uh, for example, um, they didn't care about me at all. I was supposed to be transferred to Australia because of my medical situation, but then they... Uh, cancelled it. Um, me and my family, we were uh, treated very badly. He said he was the subject of constant threats from detention centre staff. He said he was denied a medical transfer despite having serious health issues. And he said he was kept in tent accommodation even after being found to be a refugee, which differed from the treatment of others who were moved to better accommodation. When someone uh, was found as a refugee, they just let them go to live in a, uh, not in a tent anymore. But uh, in my case, uh, we were found, like my family and I, we were found as a refugee, uh, but uh, they kept us in the tent and they kept uh, telling us that uh, there is no space, but we knew that it was lie and um, there was like space available to go. 
And so I think for Nazir, in his mind, it all started to come together. Uh, when we were on Nauru, because we were under such pressure, we said many things. Uh, we mentioned many things that they might um, use them against us. Now I'm a bit worried because we said many things out of anger. For example, we said that uh, the government is cruel and dictator. Uh, but I'm worried maybe um, they would revenge uh, and I don't have a good feeling about it. I'm wondering outside of the cases of Mehdi and Nasir, do we know if this has happened before? the use of Wilson security to gather intelligence on people in Nauru? Yeah, it's a good question. So we do know of isolated incidents. Definitely back in 2015, the company faced really quite widespread condemnation when it was revealed that their staff had been covertly tailing Green Senator Sarah Hansen young during her trip to Nauru. Mm. Wilson said at the time that those staff were operating without their authorization, that it was an isolated incident and that they didn't condone what the staff had done and that they'd been disciplined. Mm. At the time in 2015, Wilson fronted a Senate inquiry and they were asked whether they were conducting any other forms of surveillance on Nauru. Would any other surveillance activities be Wilson? The then Executive General Manager for the company's Southern Pacific operations, John Rogers, told the inquiry... Um, Senator, we don't conduct any surveillance activities at all. All right. Do you subcontract any of those sort of activities out to third parties? No, we don't, Senator. Okay. Um, Were there any wiretaps, listening devices or otherwise placed either in Senator Hanson, Young's room or vehicle? No, absolutely not, Senator. Okay. But then a year later in 2016, these fortnightly reports began. Chris, you mentioned before that the Australian Border Force and immigration officials were in these meetings being briefed on these reports. Do we know how high this goes? Look, these reports were being briefed to very high levels of, you know, the Border Force, the AFP, the Immigration Department and other agencies. So the knowledge of these reports and the fact that they were happening and this kind of intelligence was being collected was certainly quite widespread and held at quite a high level. So, Chris, what do Wilson Security and various Australian authorities have to say about these revelations? So, we went to Wilson before this story was published with with a whole series of questions. Uh, They declined to answer them and they directed any questions about its work on Nauru uh, to the Australian government. A spokesperson for the Home Affairs Department said that as a subcontractor, the Commonwealth did not have any direct contractual role with Wilson Security And as the garrison provider at the time, Broad Spectrum was responsible for the good order, operation and security of regional processing centres. They're kind of pointing out that they didn't directly hire Wilson Security, but they did hire the company that hired them. What else did they have to say? So interestingly, the spokesperson for the Home Affairs Department said the collection of this kind of intelligence um, about, quote, issues that may increase risk was needed to manage the security of the centre and to, quote, ensure the safety of all transferees. So the Home Affairs Department said the collection of such information supports this risk management and security approach, and they said the practices employed by service providers are lawful. How have others reacted to these revelations? 
So I spoke to Zaki Haidari, a refugee rights campaigner with Amnesty International Australia. He said this is another example of the Australian government playing politics with people's lives and failing to uphold human rights, in this case, people's right to privacy. Mm. Um, He also said there was a clear public interest in publicly exposing the treatment of those on Nauru, even if it did date back to 2016, and he said that, you know, the public has a right to know where their money is being spent and and refugees have a right to know the truth about what happened to them. Mm. He said that he's hopeful that, you know, reporting of this kind will ensure that this doesn't happen to other refugees in detention centres who are powerless. Mm. And I also asked Mehdi about what what consequences do you think there should be for the Australian government and for Wilson's security I don't really know. Uh, I think they should take to the court but uh, about why they did this to people. And he says he wants to see this taken up in court. Did Mehdi or Nasir have a, a message for anyone who might be listening to this podcast, for anyone who is following your reporting? Um, Chris, mm. so he wants um, this part to be used, if possible. Yep. In the podcast. Yep. So one thing Mehdi wanted to highlight is that he's still in community detention. And uh, we don't have access to many services and um, uh, it just makes our life very complicated. And we know that there are hundreds of other refugees who spent time in offshore processing in Nauru and on Manus Island who are now in community detention or on bridging visas. And Mehdi called for these people to be given visas so they can live normal lives. What I expect and request the new government is to give us a visa um, to live like other peoples in the community, to have access to education, healthcare, work right, and we really want to contribute to the Australian um, society. He also didn't want people to forget those living in the community on Nauru and in Papua New Guinea. They are suffering. They have gone through many difficulties. Uh, They've been damaged. They've been tortured. And uh, please keep talking about them and keep advocating for them. And uh, where is justice? Where is freedom? When freedom going to happen for them? Yeah, um, he says thank you very much. Okay. Merci, Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Christopher Norse, a reporter for Guardian Australia. You can read his full article at theguardian.com. It's called Coalition Used Private Contractor to Collect Intelligence on Nauru Asylum Seekers. Okay, that's it for today. This episode was produced by Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers for Full Story are Miles Matignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie, and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.